Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Andrew and Andrew on Texas Criminal Defense. I am Andrew Harith. Good afternoon, Mr. Harith. I'm hey, Andrew Decker. Mr. Decker. You Sorry we stumbled into this. We were having some technical difficulties. Yeah, it kind we of threw me for over. a loop. You know what our guest and I have in common that you just can't live up to? <laughs> What's that? We both wear bow ties. <laughs> you, well, my friend, true. should. And only one of you pulls it off. Um, so, oh. <laughs> uh, well, I am very excited about uh, this guest today. In fact, we're so excited about this guest that we did not have a June 1st show. We um, decided to save our energy for Mr. Leon Haley Jr., a uh, what statewide famous, uh, nationally renowned attorney from uh, out of Fort Worth, practices all over North Texas. Mr. Haley, how are you, sir? I'm doing fine, and and thank both of you for inviting me. Of course, yeah, of course. We've actually, I think we've been working on this for almost a year, and finally, uh, Leon's calendar and our calendar synced up, and so we we grabbed it as soon as we could. And our and our internet was trying to uh, trying to throw that into the into the trash too, but technology, bro. Oh, oh well, oh well. So, Mr. Haley, we have we've been really excited to talk with you um you know why don't we just get started with telling us a little bit about yourself and and how you got into criminal defense okay well first of all i'm from tarrant county i grew up here in fort worth on the south side of fort worth uh that's the rosedale and and um the rosedale area of the south side i grew up as a young person there i went to a to a school called James E. Gwynn. Then I went to I Am Terrell. That puts you on notice of how old I am, of course. I Am Terrell uh, high, high School. When I graduated, I went to UTA. And then when I left there, I went to Washington, D.C. to go to law school. Now, just, just to put a little note on that, I went to a school called Antioch School of Law. The school was very creative in, this, in the sense that it recruited students out of some type, some form of depressed environments that they felt they could compete with any other student in the nation when they became a lawyer. So what they what they did is the school that I went to was funded by Legal Services Corporation. It was funded by Brandeis University, partly Harvard, and that school had students in it that were from Harvard, from Yale and from other, uh, you know, notable uh, Ivy League schools. And then you had students like myself that were from the inner city. And the way they taught us was pretty much, um, it was where you normally you're taught the, the Socratic method. We were taught in a situation where you could challenge the teachers. Um, most of the time, half of the time we went to school and and another half of the school were clinics like myself. I was in a military clinic. Um, I was in the juvenile clinic and in DC, when you're in the juvenile, everything is federal. So I was always in the juvenile clinic. I was in the criminal law clinic. Then when I graduated, I came home back to Fort Worth because I had an interest since I've been a child, since I was in the second grade I knew I wanted to be a lawyer and I got that from watching television and wanting to help people and wanting to help my uh, community. Everybody that I saw that was a politician that I knew in my little community were all lawyers. So I figured that that's what I needed to do, become a lawyer to help people in general. I have more of an interest in federal law because whether you know it or not, most of my friends around me all laugh about it. Even when I was in law school, I had intended to be the, I had intended to be president of the United States. That just shows you how my mind operated, what I believed I could do. All right. But of course, but of course Obama took my spot and I was <laughs> fortunate enough after he became president, the second term that he was president, I got to sit on the second row and watch him be inaugurated. So I felt Amazing. like I had made it. He just had made it before me. Right. That's now, awesome. I came home and I worked for Congressman Jim Wright. At the time, he was the Speaker of the House. And I was counsel on his staff. And I ran the Fort Worth office for about two years. Then I left there and, and Judge L. Clifford Davis was an attorney, uh, 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 a 
black African-American attorney here in the city uh, for a very long time. He gave me a phone call and he said, you know what? I know you came home to run for Congress, uh, but the but the thing is, if you want to run for Congress, you need to be your own boss. So I tell you what, I'm getting ready to go on the the criminal bench. You want to come take over my practice? So it was like I had a dad that gave me his law practice and I closed his practice down. And one of the things he told me when I took office is this. He said, look, you're very different in terms of the way you handle your business as a young lawyer. So I want you to remember something. Always remember, make them know that there's a lawyer on the other side. It doesn't matter how many people on the other side, only one can talk at a time and you probably can talk better than they can. <laughs> so <laughs> I did that and I used it. So I started practicing. I've never worked for anybody but myself. I opened my practice and I've been practicing now 41 years. And Wonderful. I want you all to know that I like what I do. And I mean, I like what I do. So it's like I don't work. It's like yeah. I just help people. I work. Now, in terms of, of the skills that people see me with sometimes, it's interesting because here's what, here's what goes through my mind. When I'm practicing law, there are certain things that I know. I know that I have the personality. It's not something that, you know, I'm bragging about. It's something that I just know I feel. I know that juries like me. I know that I have a good personality with people. I know that I come from an environment where I can identify. I can go different directions. I can, I can, I can deal. I can talk neighborhood talk. And then I can talk intellectual talk. And I know that when I'm dealing with people, I try to make them understand. Let's not worry about the law. See, I don't believe juries care about the law. All they want to know is if they believe me, the lawyer. So I try to make sure that they understand and feel me. So when I'm in trial, I'm always going to be closely connected to my client. I'm not like a lot of lawyers that will sit there with a client and it seems like they're distant from that client. So even when I used to be court appointed to now when I'm retained all the time, I touch my clients. I feel on my clients. I point to my clients. I make the jury understand we over here are in a cage and y'all are sitting out there looking at us. You don't even know us and you have a lot of problems on your own. So let's be fair. So I focus on the jury to be fair. I believe that you win your case doing Vodair. To me, if you cannot defend your client doing Vodair, you're going to lose your case. That's when you have the, the time to develop a relationship and a rapport with those jurors. I have developed a talent where when I'm Vodairing, I look at every juror while I'm Vodairing. By the time I finish talking to everybody, I quit when I know I have spoken to everybody. I can tell when I'm speaking to people whether they like me or not, or whether they are, are feeling me. Mm -hmm. And if I feel that they're not feeling me, I, I move on to somebody else that I, and try to decide who I'm going to remove from that jury panel that I can with my 10 strikes or my three strikes, whichever yeah. ones I have. Um, when I'm when I'm when I'm trying a case, I'm developing and I'm putting on my defense. I am putting on my defense doing vote out. The state doesn't know that they're kind of getting used to it. But I have the I believe that when you you should already know when you go in the defense that you would like. So when I go in, if I'm let's say, for example, I'm trying a. A dope case where the dope has been dropped on the ground and the police are contended that my client threw some dope out. My defense is always, as much dope as in this country, dope is always on the streets. You can find dope anywhere and don't let it be in the neighborhood. I know dope is laying around. <laughs> That's the yeah. way it works. Jurors. Yeah. And jurors believe that. They have to believe me. I have to give them a story that they believe. When I'm dealing with, I just finished uh, um, speaking to the uh, Hispanic organization, they wanted to know, how are you winning these cases when you're dealing with continuous minimum 25 and these people are accused of molesting these children? I say, because when I go into a trial, my strategy is always 
come up with something that a jury can believe, but you have to force it up on that jury. And it has to be reasonable. So when I try a sexual assault case with children, the first thing I do is I vet my client. I determine if my client is a good parent. Then I go to trial and my strategy is different than most lawyers. They're trying to try the case based upon the law. I could give a fat rat about the law. Juries don't believe it. They believe you if they believe you're telling them something that they can really identify with. So I start off by telling jurors, the state is here to try an aggravated sexual assault of a child. Jury, they're going to try to send my client to the pen for life. Do y'all hear me? The jurors are looking. Then I say, but let me tell you what I'm really here to do. I'm not here to try a sexual assault trial. I'm here to defend a good man. This is a good man. All men that are put on trial are not guilty of a crime. So therefore, now the jury has focused on me. They're not worried about the state. And I tell them, if I show you that I have a good daddy, can you find my client guilt, not guilty? And invariably, they're all going to say yes. And now I have that panel because I know that even though I don't have to prove anything, they are only going to wait on me to see what I have to do. So then I have established that no matter whether, because arguing whether the child is lying or any of that, all they want to hear is, is he a good dad? So usually if I can show a good dad, they're going to find him not guilty. Um, when I'm handling murder cases and I represent a lot of people on murder. In fact, there are no murder cases in the black community that does not go through my office. If you read it in the paper, I assure you, they have come in this office and asked me some questions. I may not have to, I mean, I can represent them, but 90% of the time they're going to come through and ask some kind of question to Mr. Hale. Yep. I'm going to give them some advice. Keep your mouth shut. Number one, mm -hmm. have a talk. If you have talked, don't talk anymore. Okay. <laughs> uh, that's where I'm going with murder. But with me, murder is very simple. To me, that's the simplest case to defend. That's how I got a reputation from defending people on capital murder, the death penalty, and straight murder. The reason is because I see murder three ways. And I used to vote out of juries on this all the time, which would get them. And I would say to them, remember, it's my strategy in my head. I've already developed how I'm headed. So I tell juries up front and murder cases always this. Anybody can kill. And, and, and I'll ask the panel, do you think you can kill someone? Sometimes people will say no, but then I'll tell them there are three ways, there are three circumstances that you will always kill somebody. Three. That's if someone is bothering your mother or your father. That is somebody's bothering your grandparent. You will kill to protect your child. But I'm going to tell you when you won't kill. And they catch, it catches them off guard. I say, you will not kill if you have to defend yourself. I said, I'm gonna tell you why. Because when you have to defend yourself, God does not want you to kill someone. It is an instinctive way of killing. But God does not, that's why in the Bible, and I think it's the fourth, I say, and you can show in the, in the jurors, they look at me, some get offended, some understand. I'll say, but you know, in the Bible, Murder uh, is not all that bad because it's like the fourth commandment or the fifth commandment, Jerry. <laughs> they say so. See, murder is not really that serious, but God does not want you to kill. Therefore, it is not in you to kill. It is in you to protect, not to kill someone. So if you're put in a corner and you have to defend yourself, if you can find a way out, you will find a way out. You will, before you kill someone, you will try to get out of that situation. But if it's your mama, your grandparent, a senior citizen, you will defend that person. You will not have to think about it. You're going to defend that person. So that's me with murder. With sexual assault, it's always the same with me as sexual assault with adults, is that I have told juries, and I have won successfully, that you know this attitude about men, um, if they get intoxicated, uh, there's no excuse and you don't have a defense when you voluntarily get yourself intoxicated. Well, then I turn that around 
when I'm defending and a young lady is intoxicated, intoxicated, I always tell a jury, fair is fair. Let's talk about fairness. Let's talk about what's right. Why is it wrong for a man if he gets intoxicated that he has no excuse? Well, what about her getting intoxicated? Doesn't she have the same responsibility? And the juries go with me. Because if right. she's intoxicated, she should have anticipated her problems herself. Yeah, that's kind of that that that's almost a um co-defendant kind of argument that if if I go with Mr. Harris and he robs a bank, I should be I should know that the risk is somebody gets shot. Correct. Right? Correct. If I go to the bar and get drunk, there's a risk that the person I go home with is also drunk and won't say no when they should. Correct. Huh, I like it. And in my and in my defense of people all the time, and I'm gonna tell you something that I really know that I that 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 I learned. I know the law. See, that's the, the and that's where I used to win against the prosecutors. It's not that I don't know the law. The law can't help me. <laughs> that's the problem. The law is usually against my client. So therefore, when I'm in trial. I'm trying to argue to a jury, let's look at what's right and wrong, because if it's your family member, if it's your cousin, if it's your husband, your son, then you're going to want the favoritism that that person did us wrong. Well, what about now when you're looking at somebody else? Your attitude is they are doing wrong. But I bet you if it was in the other way around, you would have my position and juries kind of go with me. Again, it's that they like my style. They look at me as being fair. And I, Sharon, Judge Sharon Wilson, when she was a day, she has, she would have me to come twice a year to speak to the new prosecutors or the new interns. And she would tell them this. She would say, you know, this guy that I want you to hear is for this reason. He handles things a lot differently. His style is not the same. When you go to trial with him, he doesn't act like the law even exists because he tries the case based on people law, upon what people think, what the community believes in. They say that you should not carry a gun. You are a felon. My position is, well, that may be true. But the problem with that is that you don't live in these neighborhoods. You didn't come from this background. I don't care what the law is. When you in a certain community, you have to defend yourself. Not that that person is continuing to participate in crime. It's just that they are at home now. They've been from the penitentiary. They got to defend their mamas and dads. They got to worry about the gangs in the community. You don't have to worry about that. Why? Because even though they are in jail because they are forced to be in jail for doing wrong, we are in jail voluntarily because we put gates and security around all our houses to keep them out. <laughs> so I try to talk from a standpoint of let's be open-minded and be fair. I focus so much time doing Vodar, which is what I'm telling you is where I go. Vodar, I want to talk about fairness. I want to talk about prejudice. And when I talk about that, juries relate and identify because when I tell them, can they be fair, they say, fine. But when I ask them, do you understand that you're not to be prejudiced? People get quiet and I tell them, I'm not talking about race. I'm talking about the way we grow up. I'm talking about the lives that we live and the things that we have and the values that we have that are a lot different. I talk to them about my children. I say, you know, I grew up, I grew up in an environment where I was a part of running from the police. Why would I run from the police? I don't know. Everybody in the community ran when the police showed up. So I ran too. <laughs> I wasn't doing anything wrong. In my community, everybody's Democrat. And I go through that with the juries. But uh, why am I a Democrat? I don't know. Everybody else was a Democrat. So that's where I went. But then I turned it. I said, but let me show you what I'm talking about. I have a group of children. One of my children is a movie director. His movies are all on TV. I have another daughter that's a district attorney. 
I have another son that's a police officer. I don't even know how they became police officers and district attorneys. And I'm an ultimate de defense attorney. Everybody, they, they like that. I say, I have a daughter, she's a psychologist. I say, but look at their environment. When they grew up, they had rooms of their own. They had swimming pools. They had cars. They had refrigerators. They had an apartment in the house. But you know what? Guess what type of political view they have? And everybody starts laughing. I say, come on, crowd, talk to me. Young Republicans. I say, that's right, the young Republicans. But that shows their lifestyle and their views are based upon the way they grew up. And here I am way over on this end and they way over on the other, yet they came from me. And everybody likes that. But I'm identifying, that's my style, is to get the jury to identify with me. And the, one of the last things, and, and with you asking me some more questions, I don't go into a case to, see a lot of lawyers try cases from this standpoint. I, I, I watch it so many times and I talk to the younger lawyers when I'm mentoring them. Guys, don't be so focused on, I gotta worry about the appeal. I gotta worry about if I'm doing wrong. You are a lawyer, use your skill, but remember, go in there to win. Don't assume that when you have a no-win case that you just need to just follow the law. No, that's when you can be creative. You can be creative and try to make something work. My rule is try your case, and I promise you, if you wait long enough, God will send you some manna from heaven to help you win your case. They really will. You may not win it, but you may get a hung jury, but you know the law, protect your client, but don't be so focused on, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about if I'm gonna get a grievance, I'm worried about if I'm gonna get ineffective assistance of counsel. Don't worry about that, defend your client. That's what I try to get everybody to understand. That's what people see. They see me do something that seems to be ridiculous, but it's not ridiculous. I've already thought it up in my mind. I just make it seem that way to the state while I'm sitting up, while I'm sitting up strategizing when I'm trying a case. And I've done this. You may have seen me do it before. I'll walk into court, people are shocked because I don't have a whole bunch of books with me. Well, the books are in my head. So when I sit down, I'll tell a jury panel, you know what? You see all them books sitting over there with the state? I mean, you see that stuff they have? I'm gonna tell y'all something. They don't have anything. They trying to find something while they trying this case. <laughs> People think that's ridiculous, but it's not. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm thinking. And the state will get sidetracked because they too busy trying to beat Mr. Haley. And I tell jurors at the end of trial doing final argument, you know what I've said here in this trial and I've watched their arguments jury and they've mentioned my name at least 26 times. They've only mentioned my client once. That's because they don't have anything on my client. So they'd be trying to attack me. I'm not going to jail. I didn't do nothing. <laughs> That's kind of how I try cases. Yeah. So Brilliant. the first time you, you may not remember this, but the first time I met you, uh, was probably about 10 years ago, you were trying a case. And this is one of those examples of where you truly said you put, you put the jury in the shoes of your client over and over and over again. He was accused of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon on a peace officer and right. as a being affiliated with a gang, because he and three of his guys, they were all like 20 years old, uh, all had like tattoos of their street. Correct. Right. It was, it wasn't like, it didn't say it it, it, it didn't say MIA. It, it was like, it was like Rosedale, or, but it was, a, it was their street street and it was over by TCC South. Like an actual street, not just like a, yeah. Like if you, if, if you and street. I, if you and I had Canyon court, right. right? <laughs> Where our office is. Yeah. Um, and he shot through the door, uh, at, at a person, uh, coming through the garage. Correct. That, that's right. That was the police coming through. I can go over that case with you. Yeah. I it, remember it very well. Um, and the, it, it was a, the, the work you did of helping them understand three boys at 20 years old saying we're friends doesn't make them a gang. Correct. 
another friend slamming the door and basically saying, oh, shit, and <laughs> stepping away from the door, told my told your guy, somebody's coming through, but we don't know who it is. Correct. And the I, I actually was in a, a group outside of the law with one of the young prosecutors on that case, and she asked me on Saturday morning, while I think it may have still been going on. Your client had already testified and they, maybe they were deliberating. And I said, she goes, what do you think is going to happen? I said, they're not going to find a gang and they're not going to find that it was a peace officer. Correct. And she goes, why? And I said, because he's convinced that jury already that those things aren't true. And he's admitted to shooting the guy. Correct. And she was, she was mad at me. She was mad at me that Saturday morning. And Monday morning, that's exactly what the jury came back with because you put them in that young man's shoes over and over and over again of what Correct. did he see? What did he know? It was it it was genius. And, th and at that point, and, and when you left, you said, when am I going to get try a case against you? And I never went to be a prosecutor. So we never had that happen, Leon. <laughs> I love it. But I remember that case because that goes to show what I'm talking about. I remember the police were coming into that house and they went in through through the garage. And my theory was in my head, I know I'm doing wrong. I know one day I'm going to get arrested. But the problem also is they're thinking that they're being attacked by another rival gang member. So why is the police going through the garage? We expect the police to come through the front door. We don't expect the police to come through the garage messing with us. We assume, and if the police comes through the garage yelling police, we're not going to believe that either because gangs do that all the time. Right. Yeah. Uh, and and it wasn't it like 10 o'clock at night when they came in the house? Correct. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And another thing, going back to what you said re regarding gangs, I always tell juries this. When they try to put my member, my my client in a gang, sometimes they are, but but even if they are, see, it's it's a matter of what they can prove. I tell other lawyers, it's not whether you're guilty or not, it's can the state prove it. So I'm real careful when I'm defending clients to make sure that the state actually can prove what they say they can prove, even though I know my clients are guilty. And, and I've tried cases where me and the state have talked about it, and I've said, you know, my client's guilty now, but I don't think y'all can prove it. So we're going to have to try this case. <laughs> and give you a good example is this gang activity thing. There are seven requirements for being a member of a gang. But I, but it's, they always use certain three, the three that they use most of the time. So usually if I'm representing a Hispanic gang member or a African-American gang member, my issue is this with the jury. They have to prove, uh, saying, one of the things they have to prove is where the person lived, did the person live on the street that the gang to, you know, with the gang. Okay, so you live on Rosedale or you live on Truman Street uh, on the east side. That's a main street. So tr the Truman gang. Well, my position is, my client lives on Truman Street. That doesn't make him, that shouldn't give him an identity to be a gang member because he lives on that street because his mom and daddy, that's where they live. Okay, well, Mr. Haley, he was also with a known gang member. The known gang member is his cousin. His cousin lives in the house with him. Y'all can't give him credit for that. Well, Mr. Haley, he goes to the high school with gang members at the high school. Well, that's not my problem. He got to go to school. You, you see what I'm saying? Right. Yeah, like he's not supposed to go to school. <laughs> then the jurors get to thinking, this is ridiculous because I'm making it seem ridiculous. Well, you help. I, I think what you do in those moments uh, is you, know, you help, you help that, that jury see that could be my kid if they happen to live next door to a gang member and there's a gang member in his school. Right. It, it feels, I feel close to it. And I agree with you. Now, let me give you another case of a murder case that I got not guilty on. I mean, I get, I, I do it a lot, a lot, but let me just show you one that's, that's, that always sticks out in my mind and a lot of people know about it. I was about to I say, how can, how can you keep all these not guilty straight? Like every time you're on the trial board, it's like, oh, well, Leon got another not guilty. Well, it's not all the time, but most, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I represent this young lady one time and, 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 and I use this, 
what I'm talking about in terms of men and women and the lifestyles that we live. Sometimes I tell juries, I don't know why men and women are together anymore, the way women hate men these days. And I tell them that. And then, you know, I'm straight about it. But I represented this young lady once when another lawyer called me and he said, uh, hey, Leon, can you come by? I got a client, but this ridiculous story that she's giving me, can you can you come talk to her for me on this murder case? Because, um, so I go talk to the young lady. When I walk out the, out the office, I talk to her by myself. And when I walked out the office, he says, well, what do you think? I said, well, she killed him, but I think it was an accident. He said, that's a bunch of mess. You, you gonna believe that stuff? I said, I'll try it with you. Let's let me try it. So we try this case where this young lady, she throws a, she gets in a fight with her boyfriend. And let's say if you're on one side of the room and she's on the other, it was a freak accident, but they're fighting and she throws a broken glass and it cuts his throat. And and I know you know who I'm talking about, Pirwani, and I would get into it all the time when I oh, go yeah. to trial. And he would say to juries, and I didn't care that he said it. It would give me, to me, it made me look good. But to other people, they, they might look at it as, man, you let me, you, you should have objected. Pierwani would say, Mr. Haley, every time I'm in a trial with you, you come up with some ridiculous defense. <laughs> That's what he said. And I said, oh, really? It's ridiculous? I said, well, let's, let's look at it my way. He said, well, Mr. Haley, in no way your neck can be cut from ear to ear without you being on that person and cutting. You can't throw a glass, a broken glass bottle and cut somebody's neck like that. And so I said, well, he just turned the wrong way and he just got his neck cut. But the issue was not that. The issue was that the young, watch this. She's beautiful. It's always good to have a good looking female client. She was very good looking. She was educated. She had graduated from TCU, but she was dating this, this guy, and he was a thug, but she was dating him, and they would fight all the time. And on this particular day, she ended up killing him. But on a 911, she's screaming and yelling to 911, get somebody here, but she's steady yelling at him. I know we fight all the time, but you go, we're going to survive this. You just hold on, baby. And she's just crying and screaming. All right. Now, in the end, here's what happens. They put her on, and I already know that she said that this is an accident, but the jury did not like her. Did y'all hear me? They did not like her. Those women did, I pick, I, I like to pick female juries when I try um, cases because I think women are more motherly and have more a uh, sense of emotion. Uh, they look at it the way, like you said, if it was their family members. So the jury does not like her. She's she's arrogant. Uh, she's bougie. She has an air about herself. And the issue is from the state, <laughs> I put her on and they had the state ask her, you must understand, I know what I'm doing. I know I'm setting them up. I put her on the stand and she says, they ask her, you don't act like you're remorseful. She say, I'm not. Why should I be? He's the one dead, not me. You can imagine the look of that jury when she said that. Oh, my God. But I know what's coming. You follow me? Watch the You'll see it. I know what's coming. I know what's going to get me a not guilty. So as we're all taught, don't ask something you don't know the answer to. Right. <laughs> they ask her, really? Well, why? And she said, thanks for asking. And this is what she tells them. This is a group of women. It's 10 women and two men. She says this. Remember, the women don't like her. She not already said she don't mind him being dead. But this is what she tells them. She says, you know, my grandmama told me. Now, that's when they should have told her, don't ask her no more. When she said, my grandmama. If you got to say your grandmama told you something, you're about to get in trouble. She said, well, my grandmother told me that it does not matter how educated you are. You're supposed to listen to your man. My grandmama taught me it does not matter how pretty you are. You're supposed to be a lady. My mom, my grandmama told me that you don't supposed to go to McDonald's and Whataburger. You're supposed to cook for your man. And my mama, my grandmama finally told me when you, when you 
or with your man. You don't walk beside your man. You don't walk in front of your man. God said walk behind your man. That he build your man up and walk behind him. Then she did this. She leaned back and she said, but I'm going to tell you what else my mom, my grandmama told me. Uh-oh. She said, man puts his hands on you, you put your hands back on him so he know you ain't the one. <laughs> and you could see the look of those women. I'm going to tell you what I knew they were going to be thinking. You got a group up sitting up there. Yeah, he done beat up my daughter. Yeah, he done beat up me. You got another group up there saying, yeah, he's a jerk. He's no good. You got another group saying, I ain't never told nobody about me. You know, right. Or I got a daughter just being beat up on. I knew they were going to identify with that. They found him guilty within seconds. And I knew they were because I knew that women do not like men beating on them. So they took it then that she was defending herself. And I, I, I knew it would be a not guilty. And but the, but but that's me knowing in advance where I'm going so that I have a good idea of where I'm going to go. Um. So I just try to lay out in my mind what I'm going to do during Baudire. And I talk about them about the fairness. And though I'm saying that to you now, that's how the whole focus is on fairness and not being judgmental before you hear all the evidence. And I also tell juries in the end, if you just wait till you hear me say, I don't have anything else to put on because I'm putting my case on when the state's putting theirs on. And juries, in fact, if I had a chance, I would put my case on first. But that's not the law. But if I had to put my case on first, I would put the same witnesses on they putting on. I'm not scared of these people because the fact that the Madam McClellan hasn't done anything. And you see how I'm talking to you all? That's the way I'm talking to the jury. Let's just look at it from what's fair. But in fact, if you were at home with me right now, jury, any of you, if you were at my house, you know what you would say to me? Mr. Haley, talk to me about your cases. You sound interesting. Well, I'm here talking to you all now. Y'all don't have, so come to my house. This is my house. This is not their house. This is my house. Mm. And then what, what I developed, uh, everybody gets caught off. The, the state knows about it now. But when I go, like if I go out of town, if I'm in Kaufman or Collin County or some little country town, it catches them off guard because when I get ready to do my final argument, I'll tell them, look, why don't y'all come in my house for a moment uh, and I'll go sit in the jury box and I'll argue from sitting in the jury box. Wow. <laughs> so it focused them on me. I don't have to be more. It just focuses them on me. Let's, let's just have a talk as though you were in my house. Let me, let, let me tell you how this works. Let me tell you what's going on. Now, this is not a, you know, these, and then I focus on, you know, you're not supposed to really be talking about punishment. But the way I'm trying my case so much, the state then lost all reality. They too busy trying to fight me. And I'll tell them, I say, you know, they're trying to get this man a life sentence for this. And it's not even worth a life sentence. He should not even be on trial. This is a waste of my personal time. This is offensive to me because I have time to try other serious cases where clients are guilty of a crime. And I got to sit in here and defend a good daddy. I got to sit in here and defend some uh, guy that's accused of raping some young lady that just got to wake up the next morning and she's a, she, she's feeling bad because she got to tell her boyfriend or her daddy where she was. You know, this is ridiculous. Uh, we got a murder case and y'all saw me, jury. Yeah, I know you're offended. I know, I know you're thinking to yourself. Mr. Haley is wrong, but Mr. Haley is not. You see that man that they wheel that they brought in with the wheelchair? Like I told him when he took the stand, you weren't sitting there slobbering outside your mouth and, and running around in a wheelchair when you was fighting my client. Yeah, you had a gun trying to kill him, so he got to you first. So there ain't no need of you looking stupid over there. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm in court, I go and directly challenge the victim. If they're sitting in court, I walk over to them and point at them. If it's a murder case and the family member is dead, I'll walk over to the family and I'll say, look, I don't have a fight in this. Your son was fighting with my client. Now, y'all in here are mad that he's dead. He was just as dangerous as my son. So y'all need to get a grip over there. You need to be worrying about your other kids that y'all have in the family and make sure they don't end up 
in the in the same situation the other son with. If you raised him right, he wouldn't be dead today. And I and I talk like that. But what am I doing? I'm talking real talk. I'm talking stuff that I I have got the jury to feel. These people are wrong with my client. And you know, um, when I'm you know I try federal cases. Uh, uh, Judge O'Connor, he's a you know he's one of the judges over in federal court. When right. I try in his court. He lets me come over there and he lets me where where juries when you know why in federal court they don't give you much time to vote out. He'll give me 20 minutes. <laughs> he he likes yeah. me to just talk to the panel. You know, he, he likes me to talk to the panel. Uh and he wants his uh interns or his, you know, the the law clerks to 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 just watch me. I mean it's it it's it's an honor, but it's a skill that that I've developed. Uh it's a part of me. I'm not emotional. When I represent a client and finish representing them, that's through. I'm through with it. I don't take any of this home with me at all. I take none of this. I've never taken it home with me. But then again, like I say, I like what I do. So I try to do the best I can. Um, yeah. Very spiritual. So, you know, I have my Bible on my desk when my clients come in my office. I, I Jurors always say to me, you, you, you could have had three professions. They say, first of all, obviously you're a lawyer, but the way you get through talking to jurors and handling your case, you you could have been a minister. <laughs> and then I'm always joking in trial, you know, doing about that. So they say you could have been a comedian. <laughs> but all that goes together to help me have a style that helps my client. Because like I tell the younger lawyers, when you're representing somebody, your client is already losing when they come in the courtroom. You got to give them some hope. You have to be like a surgeon on an on a operating table in a hospital. All they have is you. That's all they have. And they may be innocent. And if they're innocent, the only person that can help them is you and God. So you have to be prepared. And I tell, uh, I tell the other lawyers, whether I represent clients that are guilty or not, my goal has always been, and, and it still is, even though 80% of the people that come in my office are guilty of a crime, I have to be prepared when that innocent person walks in here to have my skills toned so I can defend them because they are the ones that are gonna need me more than anything. The ones that are innocent and they have no one to believe in but them, but me. I have to tell them, I don't need you talking. But Mr. Haley, if I don't talk, it does not matter. If you talk, you're gonna talk yourself into the penitentiary. That's the bottom line. That's why we have taught people not to talk. But I do let a client talk and it's, this is the only time I let a client talk is if, after the case is over with, I conclude that there is a point that needs to be made that only that person can make. And I don't care what their criminal record is. At that point, they need to take the stand because they are the only ones that can make that point. And I tell clients when they take the stand, you look into the eyes of the jury. When I question you, you answer them. Do not answer me. And the reason for that is because people when you talk, they look into your eyes and they look into your eyes because they believe they can see whether you're telling the truth or not. Yeah. And if you're looking at them, I tell young men that I defend that are thugs that have bad attitudes. I tell, I sit them down and I tell them, you must do what I tell you. When you take the stand, you must say, yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. Yes, sir, and no, sir. Because no matter how much of a thug you are, it comes off as though you're humble when you say yes, sir, and no, sir, and yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. You can't be a thug by saying that. <laughs> yeah, you soften them up a little bit. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And when they're answering the prosecutor, yes, sir, and no, sir, I say when the prosecutor attacks you, you just say, uh, I'm sorry, but I did not understand. You keep doing that that jury gonna get mad with that prosecutor. <laughs> yeah. And when I 
and, and I do not object a lot. I do not object when I should be objecting. But the reason I don't object is because if I don't object, then the state does not object to me because I need some things in that are objectionable. So if I don't be spending a lot of time objecting, then they get sidebarred and then they don't object. And then I get in what I need to get in. I will open the door. People think that open, oh, oh you're not supposed to open the door. I'm gonna open, I'm gonna knock a, a, a a hole through the wall if I can to get get the evidence in that I need. I'm gonna do it because it does not matter. I'm if I'm gonna lose, I'm gonna lose in a fight. I'm not gonna lose laying down. That's how I feel about defending clients. I love it, man. I I, I really do. This is like really inspiring to me because I I do sometimes feel constrained by you know not opening the door like oh you know being scared of being scared of some, some facts or some piece of history in my client's life, you know, or, or something like that. But, you know, I, I love that. If it fits, if it fits in your, with your, you know, strategy, if it fits in your theme, uh, if it helps your, the jury relate to your client, what, you know, just do it. That's more important. Right. But remember when I, even when I do that, I put the jury on notice doing bold out. You know, sometimes there's a lot of things in a person's background that would harm them, you know, and that's why the law does not allow us to get into people's backgrounds, because those things might prejudice you. They might bias you. And I'm going to give you a good example, Jerry. I could open the door to something and somebody could say, well, didn't you beat your mama? Didn't you didn't you slap your mama when you was uh, 16 years old? Okay, what's that got to do with him killing somebody over here? They ain't got nothing to do with him slapping his mama. Maybe she needed to be slapped. I know you don't like to hear it, but that's <laughs> reality. But see, you see, but I'm being honest. And because I'm advocating that to the jury, but again, you have to have the personality to be able to say those things and get away with it. Right. No. Right. Uh, but, but you cannot be afraid either. And some of the younger lawyers that I mentored, they, they go out there and do that. They, they understand. Don't be afraid to put something out. Remember, you're already losing. You're trying to get something to open the door. Perfect example, long time ago, but I, I, I do it. Uh, I, I represented a guy in a drug case. And you know, you can't get into the identity of the informant. And I always have had a problem with that because that's in federal court or state court, unless that informant was out on the scene. OK, so when I'm trying where an informant involved is involved and I can't get into that informant, soon as the police hit the stands, the first thing I'm going to ask the police officer is uh, obviously the, the, the informant is not here. Is that correct? Yes. I said, but you know what's sad in, in front of the jury? I was like, but you know what's sad about the informant? If that person was here, they would say this is not my client that. That he sold the dope to. He would say that's not the person that he's been dealing with. Y'all say he's reliable, but he wouldn't say that. You, you see where I'm going now? And then they'll say, okay. I say, well, you know, SpongeBob was there. And they said, well, who is SpongeBob? I said, oh, you didn't know his name was SpongeBob? Did you hear what I just did? I don't know if his name was SpongeBob either. I just gave him a name. But when he say, I didn't know that was his name, I said, well, you didn't know? Well, let's just talk about SpongeBob. In the whole trial, we'll talk about SpongeBob. He's not there. Uh, and so at the end, I'll tell a jury, jury, where is SpongeBob? SpongeBob would never have said that my client did this. But no, they don't want to bring SpongeBob. But they say that's their informant. <laughs> I get a not guilty, right? Right. <laughs> they, yeah. This name brings the, the jury. They go back there and talk to the jury. They say, will you explain to us why y'all didn't convict this man with all the evidence we had against him? Jerry <laughs> said, where's SpongeBob? <laughs> right. Yeah, you won't bring us the, the eyewitness. Yeah, so where's yeah. SpongeBob? Yeah. But, but the law does not allow them, the, but the law shields them from bringing SpongeBob uh, unless SpongeBob was there on the scene. Well, see, I know the law. I understand. So I work around it because I know that people have problems with these situations. They do. I tell juries all the time, 
the biggest case of that, you know these, you know the car cases where they put the cars on the street. Yeah, the bait cars. I I have never lost a bait car case. If you talk to anybody at that DA's office downtown, I've tried at least four. I have never lost a bait bait car case. And the reason is because I have a public policy that I argue to juries. My position is on on bait car cases, that is wrong and should be against public policy because you are putting a dangerous car out on the scene with a key in it and a young person one of these days is going to get in that car and drive off and hurt somebody. You are putting bait cars in minority communities all but uh, entrapping them to commit a crime. This is wrong. I tried the most popular, the most celebrated bait car case downtown where my client is in a car, has the car at his house, breaking the car down. The police drive, the police realize that the bait car was missing. They track the bait car to his house. They go to his house and surround it. He calls 911 and, and, and the DAs can talk about it. Dials 911, says, hey, it's a bunch of police out here in front of my house. Would you, somebody want to explain to me why? They say to him, sir, we have tracked a car to your house that is stolen, that you have one of our cars. He said, hell, I do have one of your cars. I just bought this car for $50. <laughs> Jury found him not guilty. Not guilty. And that's because I was able to show that that's not fair. They were trying to cut the car off in the middle of traffic. I said, what kind of attitude is this? They're trying to turn the car off. They can't turn it off. Somebody that stole the car. You see the camera. You see he didn't steal it. You see that he did not steal the car. Somebody else stole the car, and then he bought the car from somebody on the street. He has a job. He got his car at his job, and his employer came and said, well, he was on his lunch break. And when the police asked him why he had the car, and it was broken down in his garage. Now, I want you to know my client running one of these chop shops, I'm sure. <laughs> but he's running out of his house. Uh, and when they go to his house, he's got about three or four more cars parked at his house. And he told the police, which is what we put on in evidence. I let him testify. He said he told the police because he said it when he talked to the police. He said, look, I don't know what the problem is here, but I bought this car. And I was taking it, bringing it to my house to break it down to be sure it was worth what I was going to pay for. It. Well, they said, well, do you know the person you bought? I don't know the person. I told him I'd meet him back in about 40 minutes back at the place when I had to go back to work. <laughs> it's just, just, just didn't make any sense. But the juries bought it. I knew that the juries would have a problem with it. And the underlying issue was not so much that it was at his house. The underlying issue is that the car was on the street as a bait car and in a community that it could cause other young people to get and get in trouble. Because, yeah. you know, it used to be a day when I was growing up a long time ago, based upon my age, when I was growing up, people joyride. Nowadays, if you get a car and joyride, you get uh, a case for evading arrest. You get a case for a stolen vehicle. That's what you get. It does not matter. That's that's the offense you're going to get. They're not going to look at it at your joyride. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Leon, brilliant. You have been uh, so much fun to listen to. Uh, I'll let you know ahead of time that we always ask we ask every one of our guests these same three questions, partly because uh, we like knowing what people are like outside the courtroom. We are we already know what you're like outside the courtroom from listening. <laughs> um, uh, but so the basic questions. What's your favorite band or musical artist? What do you listen to? Well, let, let me go back in the back in the day. Back in the day, who I listened to, I obviously was the Temptations, Gladys Knight, or the Ashley Brothers. But now I am a part of the young people. And I do mean young people. I, I listen to rap and hip hop. And my favorite group is the baby. It's just what I'm saying. The baby or or um little baby. Those are the popular rap groups are. As people will know, um, you know, I'm into Snoop Dogg and all of that. Uh, though that's kind of you music. know, Snoop listen, Dogg's old, right? Yeah, to me, Snoop <laughs> Dogg is old. Yeah, I listen to uh, hip hop, the latest hip hop groups. Uh, that's what I listen to. 
Awesome. What about like uh, your favorite book or one you're reading now that that you just recommend to people? Well, I'm not reading anything now, but I would recommend, you know, especially from a legal standpoint, uh, I have certain books. I have uh, Justice Ruth Ginsburg's book, and it's really good. It's called My Own Words. Uh, it's it's a very good book to listen to her talk about her life as she uh, grew up and how she as how she became a judge and then went to the Supreme Court and her fight for women rights. Uh, that's a good, very good book. Of course, I have Obama's book and I have Michelle's book. I have those kind of books. I just, but uh, I have more of the legal and political books. Uh, Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I, I read mostly history for the same reason. There's just so many good things to learn. Um, so what's the best piece of advice you've give, been given? It can be personal or professional, but a, a, what's a piece of advice you've been given you kind of carry with you? Well, what I carry with me is that what I, what I carry with me is that deep down, I have a spiritual belief that if I stay focused, because I get it from my mother and my grandmother, if and I and I did have a father in the home, but I get it from my mother and my grandmother that if you stay focused and you just let God guide your life and your career, especially she always would tell me when she hear me talk about some of my cases, you can help people if you just wait long enough because God will guide you the right way to defend your client and help your client. And then I tell the younger lawyers that I mentor, you need to stay focused. You need to develop a defense in your head prior to trial. You see me and you just assume that I think this stuff off the top of my head, but I really don't. I read my client's facts. I don't need to go over it over and over again but those facts are not going to change. So I focus on when I get ready to go to trial, what do I think about the jury? What do I think that they think of me? Now I'm going to tell you something that's with me. And I tell the lawyers that they're, they're caught off guard. I say, I know it seems like it's just natural for me. I say, but something that I, that I've learned every time I get up before a jury at the moment I stand up, I'm a little nervous. But then as soon as I start talking, that all goes away. I say, and that's a good sign for me to know that I'm not just assuming that I'm going to win and that I know what I'm doing. Because we all make mistakes. So you can't be so sure of yourself. But it's not that I'm not so sure of myself. It's just that I have that little bug in me. It makes me a little nervous when I stand up. Are these people going to believe me? Are these people going to? Because sometimes some of the juries, I get into it with them, but but I get over it. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, well, Leon, this, this has been a great conversation. I it sure has. I, I know I appreciate it. Like I said, I remember the first time I saw you in trial, I watched you for better part of a week. And, uh, I, well, you, you pulled me along just like the jury. I, I knew exactly where the jury was going to go by the end of that week. So uh, well done, sir. Yeah. And thank okay. you so much for spending time with us. This is, this is really, I think ranks up there in one of the, one of the best conversations we've had with uh, with another attorney. Yeah, yeah, really appreciate that. So, uh, you all to know, uh, in the next couple of months, I like right now I have like sixteen murder cases on my in my office, and I and, and six of them are dealing with juveniles that are from the ages of uh, sixteen to fourteen. That's what's going on in our community right now. It's these murders with the young people. Right. So I just want you to know that at some point you will see me in trial in the next probably next 90 days trying some of these very, very difficult murder cases with these young people. Uh, today, I think I've worked out one, but there's a couple of them that it's going to be pretty hard, but I'll be trying to get them off uh, if I can. Really, a lot of times uh, I have found that when I try murder cases with juveniles, that and, and I insist, watch this, I insist upon my juvenile kids being certified and brought downtown. And this is for this reason. When they're certified, when they're out in juvenile court, juries look at them as bad kids, dangerous kids. 
when I bring my kid downtown, then I get to argue, why did the state, why is the state prosecuting him in an adult court? They need to be getting some type of help in jail. They be sitting up there, man. You asked for the man to be certified. <laughs> but <laughs> children differently when they come downtown with adults and a child. They yeah. really have problems with that. Jurors do when you're a child in an adult court. But I'm going to tell you, it's changing right now. So I have to get my strategy different because it is these young boys that between the ages of 23 and 14 that are killing people. Yeah. That's the group. So the juries don't care. The jury is going to try to take them off the street because they're dangerous. So I just want to leave that. Well, we'll, we'll be watching for it. We'll come and sit in and watch and see, see how it goes. See how it goes. Well, thank you again for being on the show. Thank you for listening to another pod, another episode of Andrew and Andrew on Texas Criminal Defense. For Mr. Harith, I'm Andrew Decker. And for Mr. Decker, I'm Andrew Harith. Y'all, Y'all be, good. be good. All right.